Hey, it's Mark. The industry is currently in the midst of an AI renaissance, but the technology isn't being integrated as quickly in medicine as it is in other sectors, such as banking. What's holding it back? One of the main hurdles involves the marketing and hype surrounding this technology. Watson Health, which never lived up to its ambitious promises to transform various aspects of healthcare, remains a cautionary tale, not only for those working with external data scientists on informatics, but for the danger of technology hype over healthcare substance. And ethical concerns abound, specifically the fear that applying algorithms to data in various contexts could exacerbate biases. As AI continues to enter the healthcare system, doctors have to be able to trust that these tools are providing responsible insights for decision-making. Enter into the equation Atropo Health, the physician consultation service and its co-founder and CEO, Brigham Hyde. The company was named by MM as one of the 10 most promising healthcare startups in 2022. In recent years, the company has rolled out its green button consulting technology to provide real-world evidence responses to healthcare professionals at the point of care and offer what it calls prognostograms, or real-world data answers to clinical questions in under 48 hours. I recently spoke with my colleague Jack O'Brien about how the company is seeking to capitalize on the renewed attention given to AI and machine language, its recent partnerships with OMNY Health and Mayo Clinic, as well as how it's vying to do what Watson Health couldn't in the industry. And let's just hear with a health policy update. Hey, Mark, today I'll talk about a few new bills introduced in Congress this week that take aim at reigning in fentanyl. Plus, U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy says social media is harmful for kids' mental health. And Jack, what three trends are we queuing up on the healthcare social media front this week? This week, we're talking about Martha Stewart's response to claims that she got plastic surgery ahead of her Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition cover shoot, Senator Dianne Feinstein's concerning health complications, and Bior Skincare apologizes for a TikTok influencer who promoted its products in an ad and repeatedly referenced a school shooting she survived. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Hi there, and welcome to the MMM Podcast. My name is Jack O'Brien. I'm the digital editor at MMM. Pleased to be joined today by the co-founder and CEO of Atropo Health, Brigham Hyde. Brigham, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me, Jack. Appreciate you being on the show. I feel like I've seen a lot about Atropo in the news recently in terms of all the different uh, things that you're rolling out. We're going to get to that in some of the questions here. But I wanted to start with just kind of a baseline question to you. Obviously, we've had a lot of conversation, a lot of reporting about ChatGPT and AI kind of having its moment in the sun as it relates to healthcare. Really kind of curious, just from your perspective, where AI stands right now and maybe how leaders are making the most or you know, maybe aren't even making the most as, of that technology as it's kind of become popularized. Where is AI? Great question. Um, no, I look, I think... AI and ML technology has really become foundational in probably every industry. I think in healthcare and in some of the non-sexy application areas, it's used every day. Um, life sciences, I think, um, is, is very focused on it. I think has been invested a while uh, on that side. On the provider side, I think it's rising. I think there's some important policy discussions happening too about when it's appropriate for use. But I also think there's plenty of stuff um, that AI and ML and now large language models can be used to help aid on the documentation side, you know, sort of the chat interface, you know, I think several elements of sort of search and identification of information. I, I think they're great use cases. I think there's more to come. I really think if, you, if you're asking like what inning are we in, maybe like the third inning, 
or fourth inning. But I think that's so exciting. Can't wait to see what comes next. Yeah, it's it's obviously very exciting, and I appreciate you kind of tying it into baseball in terms of you know where we stand. Obviously, so early on in terms of what companies and different organizations are going to be able to do with it as it relates to the work that you and your company are doing, you know, where, where does it stand in terms of AI and ML? Obviously I know that's a a core uh, function of your organization. So it's funny. So we think of ourselves as a little old school, but we like other organizations use AI and ML throughout our platform. So what we do is that we provide answers uh, to physicians and researchers at the point of care that they might have about a certain patient they've seen or key therapeutic or, you know, even an unknown diagnosis, right? And they can ask us a question, a couple sentences of text, just like ChatGPT. But our technology takes that in. What we do is we actually do uh, actual observational research. So we look at de-identified patient records that look like that patient. We'll run the study design and, you know, do the statistical comparison between, um, you know, one treatment or another or one outcome or another. And in that way, we're actually um, using something called inferential statistics, which are not new. Uh, they've been around a long time. And there's this like taxonomy game that goes on between like what's AI ML, you know, what's a T is a T test AI, <laughs> you know, like linear algebra. Okay. On and on down to things like, um, you know, boosted clustering and neural networks and all those new things. So um our role, you know, and this has come up a lot on the provider side. Let's say you have like a sepsis algorithm, okay, which are one of the more topical ones. And we make a prediction using great AI, you know, trained on huge sets of patient data and, um, you know, the best modeling techniques. And what comes out of that is a risk score, essentially, right? So like the risk this patient could get become septic. Well, what we're finding is physicians are like, okay, cool, like good to know, right? Like, thanks for flagging, but it doesn't answer the question of what do I do now, right? And there's maybe then another model for that, but our role is to be like, okay, let's find that, use AI to find that high-risk patient. And then when the question of like, all right, treatment A, treatment B, protocol A, protocol B, which one's going to do better? We will discreetly answer that and we'll do it using the specifics of that patient not sort of patients in general. And so we're seeing this hinge between risk prediction or opportunity prediction and then actual decision-making on the path forward. And I think the classic models of inferential statistics and observational research are great for that. And what we've done is just made that extremely fast. And there are parts of our technology that leverage AI and ML techniques to make that speed work. But, you know, without that speed, you can't get that question back. You need to find the sepsis risk and then you need a question what to do. You need to answer it quickly. So that that's where, where we focus. Not, not taking anything away from, you know, AI predicting uh, medicine. But again, just think of that moment like, okay, risk identified, but what do I do? And that's where we think uh, evidence generation is really critical. It's interesting you bring up a, a couple of key points there. One about the fact that like none of this technology is per se, you know, necessarily new or innovative. It's just the applications being able to use it in a way that's you know clinically meaningful. And also you talking about too about kind of this idea that we've heard in the past about actionable data, not just you know flagging something for the sake of flagging it, but it's like what happens next? How do we improve patient outcomes and make a difference that way? I kind of wanted to parlay that a little bit into what uh, you and your organization are doing with Omni Health. If you can kind of walk our listeners through that partnership. And then I have a few uh, specific questions out of that. 
Yeah, you know, Atchpo, uh, really simple goal. We just think uh, we should have personalized medicine for every physician-patient interaction. So a real simple uh, objective for the company. One of the great ways to get there is through partnership. And, um, you know, there's multiple lever- levers to that, multiple partner types for us. But Omni represents both a data partner and a channel partner. And uh, if you think about it, Omni Health serves um, largely specialty care practices and provides data infrastructure uh, and research value to them today. Um, but uh, got to know the CEO, Matesh, and sort of looked at what we were doing and was like, hey, what if, you know, we're just like an app that sits on your platform and lets you go back to those same providers and say, hey, because you're working with Omni Health, guess what? You can launch this service, the green button informatics service that we have at your point of care without any more work being done. So, you know, we're sort of, uh, let's call it cooperators in that, in the sense that we're just another application to make more value for those members who are contributing. And I, I personally feel like the investment that health systems and providers have made in really building our health data uh, infrastructure over the last, you know, 15, 20 years, you know, it, it's great to aggregate data and, you know, aid research, those are valuable. But what about actually having clinical impact population health impact, outcomes impact. And uh, we're, we're a way to accelerate that. Again, speed's the key. You got to be able to get that insight back to a physician quickly. And that's that's where we come in. Um, so yeah, it's a really natural partnership. Super excited about bringing the value to Omni partners and also leveraging the great work they did on their data infrastructure. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and one of the questions that I had when I was reporting on it a couple of weeks ago when the announcement came out is just kind of how you look at measuring success in that sort of way. You've mentioned speed a couple of times, and obviously that's such a key aspect when it comes to, you know, being able to work with providers and healthcare organizations. But what, you know, when you look in at that partnership and you say, this is what I hope success looks like, what is that vision? Yeah, I mean, it starts with use. So we want doctors ordering, um, very simply. And we measure that by volume and um, we've now done thousands of these requests across multiple institutions since we launched. Um, you know, our hopes are even higher for what can be done within uh, Omni's uh, partner base. You know, I think the second thing I look at is, okay, well, what are they ordering them for? And what's the impact that's having, right? So think about ROI measurement and, um, you know, did we make a better clinical decision because we were better informed? Did the patient have better experience? Did uh, the institution meet its clinical and quality metrics? Those are all things... Um, we're helping them achieve. And, and it's in a simple way. The simple way is, you know, if you look at the practice of medicine, it's informed by guidelines and care protocols. Those are based on clinical trials. Most clinical trials would exclude most patients, right? Something like 70 odd percent. So you end up with a situation where caregivers and providers are making decisions for patients that are in front of them that wouldn't have been in the trial that's advising their care. So offering the ability to have personalized evidence for that patient and, again, delivering it at the pace of care, you know, uh, we think leads to a more informed decision. I mean, you know, you want the at least the input of, hey, what happened to other patients like this one and, you know, what would work best for them? I am kind of curious, pivoting off of the Omni Health partnership to Mayo Clinic, which is obviously one of the most well-known brands and healthcare, really curious in terms of what you're doing with the Mayo Clinic and being able to, you know, leverage your technology to assist them in their mission. Yeah, it's another great sort of collaborative relationship. Um, There's a bunch of vectors coming off of that. But, you know, their team, um, John Holomka, Manish Coyle, others really invested heavily to build the Mayo Cloud platform. And just saying like, hey, let's let's build the best uh, sort of data environment 
you know, data uh, cleansing and curation improvement enhancement tools and the best sort of security infrastructure you can have. And when we do this, we're going to be able to drive value back to not only our own uh, institution and clinician, but also to our partners and affiliates. And while they do that in a number of ways, and they're heavily involved in, you know, AI model training and development testing, one of the other things they saw with us, same thing, it was like, well, you know, wouldn't it be great if people could uh, get a second opinion from the data in about a day if you're at Mayo? And uh, we work closely with their uh, e-consult team, which they already offer. Like you can already, if you're an affiliate, get a, a Mayo physician's opinion on a case. What if we add to that, you know, the digital view? What, what, what happened to patients like this at Mayo? And I think it's a simple idea that, you know, wouldn't you want to know how this patient would be treated at Mayo and see if they did better. And, you know, is that something we should adopt? So again, what we enable is that sort of like last five yards and, and the great user experience. So how do we get this out in a really methodologically consistent way, truly rapidly and, and bring that value to their members and their affiliates? And we're super excited about where that's headed. Um, more opportunities even to come working with them. And, and that kind of leads into my next question, which is obviously you've had a lot of this momentum from the end of last year and certainly into the start of this year. What do the months ahead look like for Atropo? Obviously, I know that a lot of the leaders that I talk to, whether they're in the agency world or just anywhere in the healthcare community, are very mindful of the fact that they're still dealing with a lot of economic headwinds and you know high inflation, potential for a recession. We're coming off of the you know the COVID uh, emergency ending. So I'm just curious what the the company's outlook looks for the rest of the year. Yeah, I mean, I, I think. You know, first of all, uh, not not my first go around in this business. I've seen different cycles. Um, you know, and I I think healthcare is a great place to be, honestly, in a downturn. Relatively, um, if you're talking about venture back community, so there, there's you know some experience and positives there. You know, we were expecting this. Um, we planned for it. And we're helping our partners and customers manage through it too. I mean, it's tough times for them. If that means partnering with them more deeply, if it means sort of supporting their needs, um, you know, with, with quick turnarounds, we'll do that. You know, um, from a sort of investment perspective, I think the venture market is, you know, a little bit tried right now in terms of where, where value belongs and, and what to do. We are seeing sort of a flight to quality um, and a lot of interest in what we're doing at Atropo just in sort of, with sort of a long view, you know, about where this can go, how big of an opportunity this is. And we're lucky to have great investors. We're backed by Briar Capital, uh, Emerson Collective, both with a very big view of the opportunity and where it wants to go. So, you know, as a CEO in a year like this, have empathy, right, for your partners and customers. They're going through it too and be supportive where you can. And then, you know, plan financially in a conservative way, even if it means some things take a little longer, but um, that's worth it in a year like this. And then it's great to have great partners and backers to you know, help help see you through. So we're, we're feeling good. I mean, I would say this year, um, you know, we'll probably three to five X the number of order volume we had last year. Um, that's pretty baked, honestly. The reason for that is we're getting a lot of reorder from uh, the physicians that work with us. And we're launching new exciting products. We just launched our evidence network offering, uh, as well as our data fitness scoring solution we're super excited about as a way to sort of decide, you know, uh, first make available uh, other data partners on our network. You know, you could ask a question of, so you could ask it of your own data, but maybe ask it of somebody else. Also, um, in data fitness scoring, helping you evaluate what's the best data set to use. So uh, those are all part of our long-term plan, and uh, we're excited to be working with partners on that. 
no, it obviously sounds very promising and it's always good to have a steady hand there, especially when times get rough on the macroeconomic level. Brigham, I've really enjoyed having you on the show and I wanted to just give you one last uh, question here about any parting thoughts maybe you'd give to our audience of medical marketers as they look out on the the landscape or is there anything from your own experience that you think they should keep in mind going forward? Yeah, I, I think from the marketing lens and you know, I spent a good part of my career uh, working directly with those folks. I think the most interesting thing about ChatGPT, there's a lot of hype, but the most interesting thing is the user response to that website and just how much use they've driven and the impact that has on information discovery, right? This It's almost like a bigger impact on search than anything else. You know, I would tell you in the medical setting, we still need more evidence for care than exists in the literature and online. So I'm not, not so worried that they're going to be replacing doctors with ChatGPT tomorrow. But I think, you know, in the marketing sense, I think everybody has to rethink SEO right now. I think everybody has to think about content and where they're going to get it from to drive towards this. And it should just be, you know, more a part of, you know, your daily infrastructure. So as sort of an extension of that rise in the IML, I think, you know, LLMs are having their moment. They're also not perfect, but I think that user experience bit has changed both for consumers, physicians, professionals across the board. Absolutely. Well, again, Brigham, so happy to have you on the show. Really hope that we can reconnect somewhere down the line on some of these important conversations that we've had and wish you and your organization the best of luck going forward. Thanks, Jack. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. Congress introduced two bills this week that aim to target fentanyl, the synthetic opioid that's been driving up overdose deaths in the country. The first bill, Preventing the Financing of Illegal Synthetic Drugs Act, requires the Government Accountability Office to study international drug trafficking and the financial methods behind it. Another proposed bill, the HALT Fentanyl Act, would permanently make fentanyl a Schedule One drug under the Controlled Substances Act. The Biden administration released a statement noting it supported both of these bills to help address the opioid epidemic. Among the 80,000 people who died of an opioid overdose in 2022, the majority, more than 70,000, were linked to fentanyl, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Fentanyl is considered to be 50 times more potent than heroin and 100 times more potent than morphine. The death rate linked to fentanyl jumped nearly four times between 2016 and 2021. On Tuesday, U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy issued an advisory in which he warned about the negative health effects of social media on young people. Murthy noted that while social media can have benefits, quote, there are ample indicators that social media can also have a profound risk of harm to the mental health and well-being of children and adolescents. Murthy's 19-page advisory offered suggestions for families, like keeping in-person gatherings free of phones. But he also called on tech companies to enact stricter age limits, default settings, and safety and privacy standards for kids using their platforms. The advisory came out shortly after Murthy announced there was a loneliness and isolation epidemic in the U.S. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM. Social media, Instagram, Instagram, TikTok, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, social media update. 
And this is the part of the broadcast where we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Hey, Jack. Hi there. I think it's interesting to kind of go from Lesh's uh, policy segment where she's talking about the advisory on social media to talking about social media. But that, again, is the interlocking or however you want to say about uh, healthcare and social media. So before we start the segment, I do want to thank a PR friend of mine, Amanda Griffith, for sending along a note about a social media challenge in the same vein as the ice bucket challenge for ALS research. The effort goes to support research into PGAP3, an ultra rare disorder. The hashtag hot sauce challenge involves filming yourself doing a shot of hot sauce, posting it to social media and tagging three other people. They have 48 hours to complete the challenge or donate $50. So if you're on Twitter, Instagram, whatever your social platform is, I encourage our audience to participate in that and thank again, Amanda, for sending that along. Our first story this week is about Martha Stewart, who recently became the oldest person to be featured on the cover of Sports Illustrated swimsuit cover. But with that honor came a slew of ire online. The main point of the criticism centered on claims that the 81-year-old lifestyle mogul received plastic surgery, which she strongly denied in an interview with Variety. She said, quote, well, it's not true. I've had absolutely no plastic surgery whatsoever. I have very healthy, good hair. I drink green juice every day. I take my vitamins. I eat very healthfully. I have very good skin doctors. She added that while she has received certain filler treatments in the past to address lines in her face, she said explicitly, quote, I hate Botox. To prepare for the photo shoot in the Dominican Republic, she said that she got her regular facials more frequently, as well as a spray tan and abstain from alcohol. Stewart's appearance on the magazine comes months after she donned the samurai sword as part of a Pfizer ad to promote the company's updated COVID-19 bivalent booster. And I think it's interesting just from the perspective, obviously, there's always conversation about whether celebrities have plastic surgery. That's nothing new. But to explicitly come out there and say that uh, she hates Botox, that she's never done it, was interesting just from the perspective. We've done a lot of coverage of um, Allergan and other aesthetics companies and this kind of um, the rise of the likes of CMA that has gotten the Jonas, uh, Joe Jonas involved, Christina Aguilera, Tayana Taylor, in kind of reshaping the conversation about plastic surgery. But obviously, that was a point of contention for Martha Stewart as she goes to uh, rock the cover of the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. I mean, I think it's interesting that she's claiming that she hasn't gotten any Botox, but she did admit she got a few inject like injections, right? Um, I, just not Botox. I think it kind of gives her an out, if anything. Kind of saying that I've I've had something done, but maybe it's She's not. She's definitely had something done, but also, I mean, magazine covers are known for filtering and you know photoshopping things as well. So, just you know, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if the folks at Sports Illustrated had something to make those images look a little bit better. Yeah, wouldn't be the first time. Yes. Okay. Number two. The unfortunate case of Diane Feinstein, it seems like every week there is some new troubling detail about her health that's coming out. The New York Times recently reporting that she suffered previously undisclosed complications from shingles during her three-month absence from the Senate earlier this year. The 89-year-old senator also suffered from Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, as well as a case of encephalitis, which is a swelling of the brain. The reporting comes days after Feinstein appeared at the Capitol for the first time in months and was wheeled around the Senate by an aide with what appeared to be paralysis on the left side of her face, which is a common symptom of Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. Days afterwards, Feinstein gave a concerning interview to a Slate reporter, which led to renewed questions about her mental fitness. A reporter asked her how other senators have responded to her return to the Capitol, prompting her to say, quote, no, I haven't been gone. You should follow the, I haven't been gone. I've been working. When asked whether she meant that she'd been working from home, she said, no. She said, quote, no, I've been here. I've been voting. Please, either you know or you don't know. 
These reports of her diminished mental and physical acuity have been joined by calls for her to resign the seat she has held since 1992, including from some Democratic leaders of her home state. It's really, uh, like I said, troubling at the start. The the main thing that I wanted to focus on here is not necessarily the politics of it. We're not a political podcast, but more of the the fact that we do have older representatives in office. Feinstein is the oldest representative in Congress. And, you know, something like this happens to people when they get to a certain age. And there have been reports over the past few years that she's been forgetful, that she has not relinquished her seat. And now, you know, I, I saw those images of when she was getting wheeled around the Senate and they were very hard to look at because that's somebody that's obviously not the same person they were 30 years ago when they were elected to the Senate. And it's really sad to see that kind of diminished state. Sure. And I, th- I think it's great that we have, you know, senior members of Congress, um, which, which add, you know, so much to, um, you know, the, the legislature and, you know, w- with reasonable accommodations, even people with disability can, um, continue to serve. But if, if at the same time that she, you know, is having these memory problems and she has trouble, you know, recalling, you know, how long she was at a commission, you know, some say, of course, that, uh, you know, perhaps uh, that means she can, she's no longer fit to carry out the necessary requirements of the job. So it's, it's a tough, it's a tough call there. And, um, you know, as you, as you said, Jack, we're not a political outlet, so, you know, no, no editorializing here, but uh, just, just a tough, uh, tough balance there to strike. Number three. Number three is probably the most troubling of the week. Be Your Skincare recently apologized for a TikTok influencer who promoted its products in an ad and repeatedly referenced a school shooting she survived. Influencer Cecily Max Brown posted a TikTok discussing her battles with anxiety and made specific mention of a recent school shooting. So in countless obstacles of me this year, from a school shooting to having no idea what life is going to look like after college. Supportive Mental Health Awareness Month, I'm partnering with Bior Skincare to strip away the stigma of anxiety. The school shooting reference in the video took place on Michigan State University's campus in East Lansing on February 13th, resulting in the deaths of three students and injuring five others. The gunman died by suicide when confronted by police. The ad prompted widespread backlash on social media, with many commentators questioning the appropriateness of using a school shooting as part of a pitch to sell skincare. One viral video that stitched with the original TikTok came from user Professor Neil, who concluded that, quote, we are living in the bad place. In response to the online criticism, Bjor posted a lengthy apology on his Facebook page, saying that while a lot of people are angry at the brand, they asked for it to be directed their way and not towards Max Brown. They said, quote, our consumers have told us that mental health is one of their biggest priorities and is so important for us to be able to provide meaningful support to them around this issue. This time, however, we did it the wrong way. We lack sensitivity around an incredibly serious tragedy and our tonality was completely inappropriate. We are so sorry. And Lesha, we were talking offline before we came on the pod, and I think that you had a really interesting take on the whole situation, which is that school shooting aside, and I do want to dig into you know just the the optics of doing something like that, there is the kind of balance that brands have to take when it comes to even addressing anxiety with product placement in the first place. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, in in recent years, there's been this whole national conversation about elevating talk of mental health and, and shining more light on it and people being more open about it. Um, And obviously brands have tried to jump on that. But there's, I think they need to figure out a way to kind of balance uh, doing it without coming off as capitalizing on it or being too opportunistic about it. And the other aspect I think is, you know, gun violence is a very real impact on mental health in America. Um, I mean, there's been so many mass shootings that it's hard to keep track. I mean, 
you know, these school shootings, they, they are, it is a real impact on young people's mental health that should be talked about. I think that um, the way that brands try to do that, though, I don't know, there, they, there needs to be a, a better way, I guess, or more of a balance, um, because obviously this one did not go over very well. And, and we were talking about it, too, from the perspective, and, and it hasn't been detailed in any sort of reporting that I've seen either from uh, mainstream outlets or either from the brand or the influencer themselves. But just how it all came to be, you know, whether this was something that the brand said, you know, we want you to talk about your anxiety, and she was tasked with incorporating that, or if she had done this on her own and then came to Bior and said, oh, I have this, but somehow it got greenlit around the way. And to your point, Lesha, I when I first saw um, you know, this trending on TikTok where it's like, oh, skincare company associated with school shooting. And you have that kind of really pit in your stomach moment where it's like, oh, which school shooting? You know, there have just been so many. It's become so regular, regular mm-hmm. and normalized, unfortunately, in this country that it kind of takes a dystopian uh, lens once it's involved in some sort of product placement like this. And obviously they're uh, they're taking it online, certainly. Yeah. And, and not to, you know, a little... Max Brown's, um, you know, what she went through, I guess, if she was involved in that, in that shooting, but, you know, just looking at some of the reporting around some of the other shootings, like, you know, Uvalde, Texas, um, and, you know, the, I mean, that was, that wasn't in a college campus, that was in elementary school, so we're much, you know, younger kids, you know, and they, you know, those kids have PTSD, you know, and everything else, because of, imagine being exposed to that from such a young age, whereas, College kids are a little older and maybe able to, you know, process that more from a from a mental standpoint. Although I'm not a mental health professional, can't comment on that. But still, it's just like, as you as you both have said, you know, it's in very very poor taste, you know, to even open oneself up to being accused of, you know, capitalizing on something as um, tragic as a school shooting and, and some something that is in the marketing framework, which uh, you know, a TikTok influencer video obviously is. Um, and, you know, we talked about this with Mr. Beast, you know, is, is you know, using a, you know, medical lottery of sorts to uh, get video views. Is that exploitation? You know, and that, that, that was a little bit of a harder call, but th- this one seems more obvious, you know, and just, you know, I'm not sure who okayed this, um, but uh, I'm sure the brand is going to be taking a much closer look at uh, Ms. Max Brown's, um, you know, postings from here on out. Absolutely. And I think there are probably going to be lessons for other, not only skincare brands, but certainly any other, uh, you know, products that are out there where if they are aligned with, you know, say an influencer that is related to some sort of tragedy, it's really walking that line of saying like, okay, maybe we don't try and incorporate that into our product placement down the line. But unfortunately, as is the case, somebody had to be the first in, in these instances. And that was Bior. So we'll be following where that all goes from here. But obviously a very, to, to quote them, a, a tone deaf approach. Agreed. That's it for this week. The MMM podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing. <laughs>